0: all right good morning once again can i have you turn with me in your bibles to the gospel of john chapter 11. if you're new with us welcome it's good to see you this morning just to let you know we are working our way through john's gospel here at calvary on sunday morning and we have been in chapter 11 for a few weeks and hallelujah we finally come to the resurrection of lazarus from the dead Now before we go on, let me just say one more time that John mentions towards the end of his gospel that Jesus did so many miracles, John said, I I would suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain them all, but these are written, and we know he chose seven miracles. So let me paraphrase. But these seven miracles I have written about that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of god and that by and that by believing you may have life in his name that's john 20 verse 31 so we know that the raising of lazarus from the dead was the last miracle john records it was number seven and in my mind and i can't understand who would dispute this but in my mind it was the greatest miracle of jesus that john records in his gospel now We have broken chapter 11 down into several main points. Let me go through them with you real quickly. First of all, the critical friend, verses 1 to 5. The callous Savior, verse 6. The concerned disciples, verses 7 through 16. The confused sisters, verses 17 through 32. Last week we saw the compassionate God, verses 33 to 37. And we'll end Uh, our outline with number six, the conquest of death, verses 38 to 44. Now, I'm calling this last main point the conquest of death because the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a preview of the great resurrection of the dead that Jesus would perform later on. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So let's just begin verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now guys, this was a typical tomb in Israel in those days. It was usually a cave, and there's a lot of caves in Israel, so it was convenient to have a cave on your property that you could use for a burial chamber. If you didn't, you would have to hew out of the rock a chamber, a chamber. And uh, you would usually, they would usually step down into these tombs that they uh, made. Uh, even a cave would have to be uh, configured a little bit uh, to hold bodies. But uh, these um, tombs were usually roughly about six foot wide, nine foot deep, about ten foot high, roughly. Okay, And uh, they had eight shelves for bodies. Three shelves on either side and two in the back wall facing the opening. It was sealed by a large round flat stone. You've all seen the pictures. A large round flat stone that they would stand on its side and roll in a groove down, usually down a slight incline over the mouth or the opening of the tomb. As we said a couple weeks ago, the Jews didn't embalm, so they would bury the dead immediately now that gives us some insight into that portion of scripture where jesus was calling people to follow him remember the one guy said well lord let me first bury my father and jesus said let the dead bury their dead you come follow me you say well that was kind of harsh i mean the guy's father died the lord won't let him bury his dead. <laughs> no see they they buried immediately those that had died what he was saying is my dad's not dead yet and maybe when he dies then i'll get serious and start following you She said, no, let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury the physically dead. You come and follow me now. Be my disciple right now. So when somebody would die in Israel, they would wrap the body in a linen sheet, as I said, with some spices to stave off the stench of death. And they would wrap the head separately with another small sheet, sometimes referred to as a napkin uh, in the scriptures. And and then finally, they would wrap the legs and the arms separately using uh, long strips of linen. Just so you have in your mind's eye what it's all about. Verse 39 Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now, I got to tell you, I love the way the King James records this and translates this. In the King James, it says, Martha said, By this time, he stinketh. (laughs) You can't get any better than that. I'm sorry. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Guys, as we have already said, by the fourth day, after a a person had died, by the fourth day, decay and decomposition had begun to really take hold. And that's really what Martha is referring to, and I'm sure you understood that. But as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, Martha had faith for the past and faith for the future. But she stumbled when it came to faith for the present. Earlier she said to Jesus in verse 21, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. To which Jesus responded in verse 23, Your brother will rise again. To that Martha responds in verse 24, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She had faith for the future, but when Jesus put her faith to the test for the present, she failed as soon as Jesus gave the command to roll the stone away. Immediately Martha protested as she began to give reasons why. What he wanted to do was impossible. Let me paraphrase what she was thinking, maybe even was saying, Lord, it's too late. Yeah, my brother's going to rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Roll the stone away. Oh, no, come on, Lord. Let's get serious here. I mean, come on. I mean, it's too late. You had your chance. You had your chance. Could have got here before he died and fixed everything. Even though you waited. and Now he's gone for four days. He's, he's good and dead. Okay? Uh, you had your chance. Uh, the time has passed to do anything to, to help my brother. Now he stinketh. Forget it. <laughs> you know, it, it, at this last great resurrection, when God raises people that have been dead for thousands of years, like Abraham, Moses, they've been dead for thousands of years. Their molecules are probably spread throughout the universe. I don't know. And God's big enough to reassemble all those molecules into their body and glorify it as they come up out of the grave. Certainly this was no problem for God, right? But we tend to supersede our human limitations onto God all the time. I think most of us relate to Martha. I'm not putting her down. I, unfortunately for me, I relate more to Martha and to Peter than I do a guy like Paul. Okay. I wish I related more to Paul, great man of faith and so on. No, I find myself relating more to Peter and Martha, maybe Thomas once in a while. But I think most of us relate to Martha. We, we, live, in, we, we live in the past and in the future when it comes to our faith. But so often, Jesus wants to do something miraculous in our lives. Listen, right now, right now. Yet we give them a million reasons why it can't be done, whatever it is. Our faith must be experiential, is my point. Not just theological or theoretical. Because that's all head knowledge. Faith that remains in your head and is never applied into your life is not going to do you any good. If we truly believed God to do great things, miracles in the moment, We would see the glory of God, I'm convinced, on a much more consistent basis. Can we hinder what God wants to do in our lives through unbelief? Now, there are those who would adamantly say, absolutely not. God is absolutely, totally sovereign, and there's nothing we can do to hinder anything he wants to do. I disagree with that. Remember Matthew 23, Jesus talking to the Pharisees? How often I wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gather. Well, Jerusalem, he's actually talking about. How often I wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. I wanted, you were not willing. Therefore, your house is left to you desolate. You shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Stephen before the Sanhedrin, Acts 7. He finishes that uh, that, that discourse. He said, you stiff-necked and rebellious, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Can we hinder the work that God wants to do in our lives and through our lives? I'm convinced the answer is yes, absolutely. Remember that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And when he went back there to begin his public ministry... Uh, you know, well, we, we, we read in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel how it says that he could not do many mighty things in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Now, it sounds like he wanted to, and he did a few things. I mean, maybe healed a few colds and whatever. He wanted to do mighty things among them, but because of their unbelief, he could not. So yes, we can definitely hinder the work of God in and through our lives through unbelief. That's why God is always working to build our faith. He's always putting us in situations that demand we exercise faith. Because faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more it grows and the stronger it gets. That's just just the way it is. But do we really believe God for the miraculous? Now, we would all say yes, but our lives often don't reflect that. Like Martha, we say we believe, as she did in verse 27. But then when push comes to shove and God challenges us to live out our so-called faith, uh, we give him all kinds of reasons why it's not possible to do whatever he's uh, telling us to do. Like she did in verse 39. Usually it's only one out of many that will take God up in his offer to do the impossible. Out of a whole boat of disciples, only one said, Lord, I'll come to you on the water. Oh, but he sunk. Yeah, but for a while he knew what it was like to do the impossible. That's more than can be said for a lot of Christians who play it safe and never step out of the boat, never take a chance, never take a step in faith. I don't want to be that guy. I hope you don't either. You know, Henry Blackaby, who wrote the book, Experiencing God. I think maybe we'll make that uh, the the next book uh, because I, I read it was I thought it was fantastic. He wrote the book, ex- great man of God. Wrote the book, Experiencing God. I, I saw him uh, at um, Founders Week one year. Moody Bible uh, College has Founders Week every February. we have speakers come in and all. He was one of the guys. Gave a great message. And in the course of this message, always about faith, trusting God, experiencing God in your life, not just in your head, uh, maybe through somebody else's life, you know but you experiencing God. He made this statement, I've never forgotten it. He said, evangelical Christians are conservative in their theology, but often are practical atheists. We talk the good talk and we believe God, and we believe in God, and we do believe he can do anything, the miraculous. We just don't often believe it that he's going to do it in my life at this moment. And so in that regard, we're kind of like practical atheists. Notice Jesus' response, verse 40. Did I not say to you that you, if, if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Hold on to that. That's going to be a very important statement in just a second. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God, Martha? Guys, the world says seeing is believing. God says believing is seeing. In other words, we often get our eyes on the problem as Martha did instead of on the one to whom nothing is a problem, Jesus Christ. Some people only view life from the negative. They basically see life as one problem after another. In that context, God then becomes nothing more than listen, a divine problem solver. But if we only look at the problem, then when God works, all we see is solved problems. Now, please hang in there I'm going somewhere with this and I think it's somewhere important Okay, so hang in there try to think through this with me it's worth your time we often look at our Christian lives as a series of problems I need a job I need rent payment I need food I need something else I need a healing I'm not saying those are small things or unimportant things. I'm just saying I want you to understand. We often look at our Christian lives as a series of problems. And our prayer life becomes, God, solve my problem. And when God solves problems, then we look at him as a divine problem solver, and that's all. However, if we keep our eyes on him, as Jesus tried to get Martha to do, then when he works, we will see the glory of God. In that context, guys, problems take on a whole new significance. They are no longer problems, but opportunities. They are no longer problems, but opportunities to see the glory of God, to see His mighty power at work, and in the process to build our faith because there are things about God we need to learn all the time. And God is always working in our lives to increase our knowledge of Him. That we would see His glory, that we would draw close to Him, that we would fall on our face and worship Him as the God of glory He really is. Remember the disciples, Jesus sent them out to go across the Sea of Galilee, remember? While He went up on top of the mountain to pray. And so He's on the mountain praying, and here comes a storm. One of those fierce windstorms that come down, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, from Mount Hermon uh, over the Galilee Basin, and and, they, and they, they these storms come out of nowhere. And so here they are on the Sea of Galilee, struggling to row across to the other side. They've been struggling six to eight hours. They 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 were exhausted. They thought they were gone. It was, they were goners. Suddenly, here comes Jesus walking on the water. Right. And Peter said, Lord, you know, if it's you, let me come walking. You know, I just told you, let, let me come out to you. All right, we'll come on out. So Peter starts walking on water, right? Gets out of the boat and walks on water. But after a little while, looks at the waves and the, feels the wind. And what am I doing? I'm walking on water. I can't do this. And starts to, takes his eyes off of Jesus starts to sink, right? Quick prayer. Sometimes you only got time for a quick prayer. Lord, save me. Jesus reaches out, pulls him up, walk back to the boat, immediately there at the shore here's what it says they had a problem right they had a problem we're out here in the storm of our life and jesus is not here it's a problem where is jesus if he was here he would have solved this problem so here he comes they get in the boat all of a sudden they're at the shore they've been struggling hours they're about halfway across all of a sudden boom they're at the shore And it says they got out of that boat and they worshipped him. They didn't understand who this really was. It's starting to dawn on them. The Lord used the storm to teach them about his glory. And in the end, the result was they worshipped him. And guys, that's why Psychological sermons are so worthless. The church is just inundated with man-centered psychological sermons. Because somewhere along the line, we have gotten the concept that what people in the church need is for us to address as pastors their felt needs. Which I'm not saying is not legitimate at all, ever. But that's become the mainstay of the church today. People with problems. And they come to the church because they want their problems solved. Pastor, give me, and pastor's obliged. The five keys to financial security. The ten steps to a happy marriage. It's all designed to solve problems. Pastor, are you saying God isn't concerned with my problems? Oh, no, he's definitely concerned with your problems. But you're going about it the wrong way. Psychological sermons are worthless. They focus on the problem instead of on the one, on, instead of on the person of Jesus Christ. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, and said, "When I was with you, I didn't preach anything to you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified." I can't imagine Paul giving a series, you know, five steps to financial security, ten steps to a happy marriage. I just don't see that's Paul the Apostle. Paul didn't preach a social gospel, nor a psychological gospel. He just preached Jesus. And again, please don't lose me. If you want to see the glory of God manifested in your life, in your family, in your church, then you got to get your eyes off the problems and all the negatives and all the reasons why it can't be done, whatever it is. And get them on Jesus and have faith for the present and watch him work you say pastor I still don't quite get what you're saying let me explain it this way maybe you came here this morning and you have marital problems and those problems have gotten so bad that you're thinking of separating or maybe even divorcing now in the past Because you have recognized you have marital problems, you have sought out a problem solver, a Christian counselor or a Christian psychologist, because they're going to help you solve your problems. May I just say this? You don't have a marital problem. You have a Jesus problem. You don't have a marital problem. You have a lordship problem. And I've told couples this. I can't fix your problems. In fact, God has not called me to fix your problems. What God has called me to do is to point you to Jesus. Now look at the guy. The reason you're having trouble in your marriage is because you are not obeying your Lord Jesus Christ who has told you to cherish this woman. To love her more than you love yourself every moment of your life. To put her first to die to self as Jesus died on the cross for his bride. And you, madam, the reason you're having trouble in your marriage is because you have a Jesus, a lordship problem. You're not honoring your husband. You're not uh, uh, respecting him the way God has commanded you. Your Lord Jesus Christ has commanded you. Well, how do I fix it, pastor? You get more of Jesus in your life. You focus on Jesus, and like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Jesus is not a program. He's a person. And you have to draw close to him and love him and let him live his life through you as you surrender to him in every area of your life. And when you do, suddenly miracles begin to happen. Your marriage is transformed. Yeah, the problems are solved. You start spending your money the way you should to honor your Lord. Your financial issues are dealt with. The problems get solved, but not as a direct result. They are solved as a byproduct of you drawing close to Jesus, making him your all in all. Somewhere along the lines, we as the Church of Jesus Christ have forgotten that as we focus on all the problems. It's like focusing on all the symptoms of a disease, not realizing that you have a disease and all you're doing is running around trying to, to, to solve symptoms when you the core issue is you're ill. Christians are running around like crazy people, trying to fix problems. They don't realize their walk is ill. They need to make Jesus everything. And when they do, they will begin to see the glory of God. God will live his life through them, and the problems will get solved. So, verse 38. Then Jesus said, Jesus, then Jesus again groaning in himself. And if you want to know what that's all about, get the, the C D or go online, listen to last week's message. And then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, I love this. Here's the God of the universe in human form saying, if you read this, you go, well, what he was actually saying, will you, will you help me over there and move the stone away? Will you help me? Did Jesus need help doing anything? John chapter 1, verse 3, by him all things were made, nothing was made, and, and without him nothing was made that was made. The one who spoke the universe into existence, he needs my help with ministry? Some people kind of think that. He could have spoken the word and launched that stone that covered the tomb out into outer space. So why? Why did he ask those that were near the tomb to roll away the stone? Because as somebody has said, God does not ordinarily do for men what they can do for themselves, end quote. Now by that I mean, you, you rely on God to do everything, give you strength to do everything he wants you to do. But understand, and I've made this point before, God is not going to do for us what we can do for ourselves. He has a part, I have a part. As I said before, God's not going to, you know, levitate you out of the bed in the morning and float you into the living room, put a Bible in your hand, and, and, and say, okay, let's, let's do devotions. I mean, if you ask him, Lord, can you give me grace to wake up tomorrow at a decent hour and be, you know, you know where I can think clearly enough, to have, will you do that? For, yeah, of course, he'll do that. But often people are waiting for God to do what he has commanded them to do and then wonder why God isn't working. As somebody has said, you're waiting on heaven, heaven's waiting on you to do your part, whatever that is, okay? I'm just sitting here waiting for the Lord to drop a check in the mail, pay my rent. He's promised me he's going to provide all my needs. Well, yeah, but the Bible also says if you work not you don't eat. So, you know, factor that into your little equation there. Verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This is one of the few instances in the New Testament Where the Lord Jesus is said to have cried with a loud voice. Why did the Lord cry with a loud voice? Was the Father hard of hearing? No. The crowd was hard of hearing. The crowd was dull of hearing. The Bible says, and Jesus himself condemned the Pharisees and scribes. He said, you know, you teach the commandments of men and worship me in vain. You hear, but you don't listen. Right? It's not that God isn't talking, it's that many people aren't listening. And the idea is that sometimes God has to shout to get our attention. As C.S. Lewis said, the Lord whispers in our pleasures and shouts in our pain. I think 9 11 got shouted. I think with the COVID, God is shouting. If we don't listen, I shudder to think how loud the shouts are going to get. I mean, God shouts through natural calamities. God shouts through social upheaval. I just pray we start listening. Because he can keep shouting louder and louder until he breaks us. Until we start listening as a people and as a person. May God give us grace. Now, this miracle by Jesus was the climax of his ministry. And apart from his own resurrection, I think the most spectacular demonstration of his deity and power found anywhere in the Gospels. Skeptics may try to explain the other two resurrections that Jesus performed away. I mean, there were three recorded in the Gospels. The resurrection of a woman that lived in a village called Nain, her son died, was the adult son. He took care of his mom, and now he's gone. And Jesus healed him. And of course, Jairus' daughter, who was 12, died. Jesus raised her. He raised the the young man um, and and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. But, you know, skeptics can explain away things, and they do. Those that don't want to believe always find reasons to explain away miracles. And so I would imagine that there are many who would simply ascribe to those resurrections that they they weren't really dead. They were in a coma. You Christians, you're always, you know. But here, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now, it's wrong to say he was deader than the other two. But if we could put it that way, you know, if we could... You know, talk about degrees of death, which you can't really, but he was good and dead, right? Hey, four days. I mean, decomposition has set in. The Jews believed at the dawning of the fourth day the Spirit left. It was now over. No no chance of resurrection. So by this time I mean, he was good and dead. Decay had really begun to take hold. Or as Martha so quaintly put it, by this time he stinketh. But listen to me. We are only about three months from the cross at this point. And here Jesus is literally laying his whole ministry on the line. Everything he has ever claimed about himself, everything he has said as to who he is, it's all over if Lazarus doesn't come back to life, right? I mean, either Jesus was a liar or a lunatic, or he wasn't his Lord of all, God the Son, which he constantly claimed to be. But I mean, if he stands by that tomb, roll the stone away, and says, Lazarus, come forth. Nothing. Lazarus, come forth. Yeah, after about the third and fourth try, people start laughing. They start writing him off as a kook, as a liar, uh, a crazy person, right? His whole ministry is on the line. This is make or break stuff. If he commands Lazarus to come forth, if he's really God in human form, the one who made Lazarus in the first place, and he commands him to come forth out of that tomb, and Lazarus stays dead, his whole ministry is over. I would imagine all of his followers would have left and never followed him again. I mean, it's it's on the line now. And yet, after he says, Lazarus, come forth, verse 44, and he who had died came out bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. As I said, this miracle was a little preview of what was to come. The Bible says that there is coming a day in which all who are in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, and come forth. Check out John 5, verses 28 and 29. And that's why Jesus made sure that he said, Lazarus, come forth. We say that with tongue in cheek, okay? I mean, if he only said, come forth, you would have emptied the whole cemetery. You now that kind of power, you've got to be careful when you have that, that, that kind of power, right? Now there is coming a day when he is going to say, come forth. And every person, every believer that has ever lived is going to be reassembled molecularly. Their body is going to come together if it's disintegrated. And they're going to come up out of the tomb with a glorified body. Jesus said there was coming a day in which all who have died will be resurrected. Some to everlasting life and others to everlasting condemnation. You can check out 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. There is coming a day when everyone... Who has ever lived is going to be resurrected some will be resurrected for heaven others for hell and it depends on each individual where they wind up spending eternity which resurrection they will be a part of the resurrection of everlasting life or of condemnation now let's bring it to a close by by applying this story practically yes Jesus gave physical life to Lazarus that's true And yet there is a spiritual application to this story as well. You know, Jesus' ministry really wasn't about raising dead bodies. It was about raising dead people. Those who were spiritually dead. When Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that you might have life. And when he said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He was saying that he is the one who gives life to the dead and saying that he was speaking though about giving spiritual and eternal life to individuals. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 1 and you he made alive we were once dead in trespasses and sins but Jesus called us the good shepherd was out looking for lost sheep he called our name and we came forth from spiritual death, and gave us eternal life. Jesus came into a world populated by spiritual zombies. Now, folks, I've never gotten the thing with zombies. I mean, you know, people love zombies. They watch shows about zombies. I've never been hepa- to zo- zombies, okay? I never understood the fascination let me use the, the metaphor Jesus came into a world populated by spiritual zombies by people who were dead in trespasses and sins people who were spiritually dead dead to God doomed to destruction lives rotting and decaying away from sin bound by the grave clothes of sin, prisoners of Satan and sin doomed to spend eternity in hell Yet Jesus came to the rescue, didn't he? By invading this world of darkness and sin to give us new life, to give new life to all who would respond to his call and come to him, come forth. To those who would come forth out of the tomb of spiritual death that they were in, they would come by coming to Jesus. Lazarus came out of that tomb and came to Jesus. That's how we exit the tomb of spiritual death. By coming to Jesus. By listening to the call. Which everyone in this room who has accepted Christ, you answered that call. You came hopping out of the old life, still bound by the grave clothes, by the way. Isn't that true? You got saved, you know, you were an alcoholic, uh, you know, for a number of years. You got saved, five minutes later, you were probably still an alcoholic. Are you probably still smoked? Are you probably still cussed? The grave clothes were still on. You were now alive spiritually. It's going to take some time to unwrap the grave clothes from your life. To clothe you with the robes of righteousness in Christ. But guys, our world testifies to the spiritual deadness of people and the decay of sin. I've never known it to be this bad. Everywhere we look, people are wrapped up in sinful pleasures. That's the grave clothes of being dead in trespasses and sins. Everywhere we look, people are wrapped up in sinful pleasures, yet the stench of rotting lives populating our culture is getting worse and worse. Reading the other day about a sin that I think is the most heinous, the most wicked of any sin, and that is how child sex trafficking is on the rise. I think there's a special place in hell for people who traffic children into sex slavery. Jesus said, It would be better off if you make one of these little ones stumble. It'd be better off if you had a giant millstone t- stone tied around your neck and you were cast into the deepest parts of the sea. But because of the COVID lockdown, more people are spending time at home, which means they're getting on into pornography more. After a while, the images don't really satisfy, so now they're looking to satisfy their lust, especially when it comes to lust for children by hooking up with people that will allow them to, you know, have sex with children. And when I read that, I'm, I'm like, Lord, you've got to be coming back soon. I mean, sin is one thing. We've always dealt with it. But the sin of taking innocent, beautiful children and, and, and using them in sex trafficking, I, I Lord, I can't even... I can't even imagine who would do that. Now, you know, there are shady people around the world that do these things. They're here in America, okay. But especially in the 1040 window, as they call it, it's a lot of sex trafficking. But you know, something took my wife and I back the other day. I had not heard this, maybe you haven't. Hasbro Toys one of the largest, if not the largest manufacturer of toys in the world, just marketed a doll. It's, uh, the doll's name is Poppy from the Trolls movies, right? And one mother discovered as she turned the little, her little girl's doll upside down where the private part would be there was a button. As she pressed the button and the doll made these pleasurable sounds like she was being pleasured. When that mom put that on the internet, what she had discovered, it went viral. 500,000 people in a matter of, I don't know, hours, flooded Hasbro with complaints. They quickly pulled it and said, oh, that was a mistake. Uh, it, It wasn't supposed to be like that. I don't buy that for a second. There are perverts working at all kinds of companies, this one included, who seems to think it's okay to teach children that pedophilia is good. It will make them feel pleasurable when people touch their private parts. We are living in a sick world. Sick world. Our world is decaying away even as we speak. And guys, man is powerless to stop it. Listen to me. Man is powerless to stop it, even as Lazarus was powerless to raise himself from the dead and stop the decay that was consuming his body. There's only one who can raise the dead whether you're talking physical dead spiritual dead and give them new life and that is the Lord of life the Lord Jesus Christ people don't need counselors they don't need problem solvers they need Jesus they need a transformation they need to become new creations that is the only hope for this world we need revival we need revival and a great awakening Jesus came to a world of living corpses, a world populated by the walking dead, if you will. And he came to give new life, spiritual life, to any and all who would respond to him and receive him as their Savior, even as he gave new life physically to Lazarus. But here's the exciting part as we bring this to a close. Here's the exciting part for us, who, uh, for us as Christians. Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, but then told his followers, loose him and let him go, right? Folks, that's what ministry is all about. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can give life. But there's no, no greater joy for us who are his followers than going around rolling away stones. In other words, sharing the gospel and seeing people get saved. And then helping them remove their grave clothes. Discipling them to maturity is the idea. Where the old man is stripped away, the old life, like into an old, rotted, decaying garment. And help them put on the royal robes of being a child of God and living a holy life. Again, guys, only Jesus gives new life. But through ministry, we help them, new converts, shed the grave clothes of the old life and then let them go into all the world to be a witness for Jesus. Even as once Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and those standing there helped to remove the grave clothes, he became quite a witness for Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the Pharisees and scribes' response was to kill him again. It was too much of a witness. We'll kind of see that next, you know, next time I think. So don't be expecting people to fall all over you that now you're a new creation in Christ. Okay. I know some would be saying, "Look, um, I- I'm not very old in the Lord. I just got saved a little while ago." I mean, how can I help someone find new life in Jesus? I understand that. That might be true. But every one of us who has experienced resurrection life in Christ can testify of the stink and rottenness of our lives before we heard his call. Before someone gave to us the gospel which essentially was Jesus calling us out of a life of death, spiritual death, into his marvelous light. We can all remember how rotten our lives were before Christ, how we came forth from the grave of sin and death to a brand new life in him. You don't need to be a theologian to say, as the blind man did in John 9, verse 25, when he was questioned about this new faith of his. And basically he said, look, I, I don't know a lot, but one thing I do know, once I was blind, now I see. You don't have to be a theologian to share a testimony. Look, man, I, I, haven't, got it all, I haven't got all the theology nailed down. I know this, once I was blind, now I see. Once I was bound to alcohol, now I'm free. Once I was hopelessly in bondage to drugs and now I'm free. Once my life was going down a road that was going to end in my death. I wasn't going to live very much longer. But then I answered the call of Jesus and came to him and he has made me a new creation. That's all I can say. That's all I can say to you. And you know what? For many, that's enough. Because they want to know that you have something that actually works. They don't want just a lot of theology coming out of you. They want to know, has it worked in your life? Yeah, look at me. My life is completely transformed. I don't hang out at the bars anymore, or I don't smoke the pot, I don't run around on my wife. I mean, you know, I did all those things before I came to Christ. And now I don't do any of them, not because I fight myself, hold myself back. I have no desire. What do you like to do now? I go to church read the Bible, hang out with other Christians, sing God's praises. Well, That sounds kind of boring. Well, when you have Jesus in your heart, it's not boring. It's a great joy. Come to Him, right? Guys, there is coming a day when all who are in the grave will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who have received Him as Savior, well, they're going to come forth to a resurrection life of eternity spent in His kingdom. Those who rejected Him, well, they will bow. The Bible says that someday every knee is going to bow before Jesus, and confess that He is God, to the, that he, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But if you wait until after you die to stand before Him and bow, then it's too late. It's too late. And you will have been a part of the resurrection of the of condemnation. today is the day of salvation the Bible says that very clearly Hebrews 3.15 today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as the people of Israel did in the wilderness are you hearing the voice of Jesus today I see I know most, most of you in this room I think most of you have done that there might be a few some are on, watching online Are you hearing the voice of Jesus speaking to your heart right now, calling you to come forth to him and receive everlasting life? If so, what are you waiting for? Let me bury my father first. Let the dead bury the dead. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Tomorrow's not promised to anyone. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our new life in Jesus. And how he called to us. We didn't even realize maybe he was calling to us, Father. But we felt that tug as somebody shared the gospel. And we prayed to receive Jesus into our heart as our Lord and Savior. And he came in. And everything changed. Nothing is the same. We are now new creations. We have spiritual life. Life is no longer the same as it once was. We have an eternal perspective. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And we understand that this life, there's a purpose here. And it's not to make money and have fun and and buy a lot of stuff. It's to glorify your name by living for you. So Lord... Anyone who is listening to this, we pray, that hasn't received you, Lord, work in their heart where they would come to you, they would come out of that grave, that tomb they're in, and find eternal life. And we just thank you, Lord, give the rest of us grace to keep our eyes on you, to keep living for you and honoring you. The time is short, the work is great, the laborers are few. Give us grace, Lord, to spend whatever time we have left serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.